Yeah, glorifying God in and through our suffering. Uh, the, the passage we'll be going through today is from 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18. Um, so most of us, uh, if not all of us, have somebody that we, we look up to or uh, we aspire to be or we try to emulate. And uh, we might know this person intimately like a, a brother or sister or father or mother, a close friend. Um, we may never have met this person. It could be some popular speaker or author a uh, celebrity or a CEO. Uh, it may even be an influential Christian. Um, but what is it about this person that you value that makes them want to, that makes you want to emulate them or to pursue a life similar to theirs? Um, is it their, their influence they have, their, their popularity, uh, their wealth, their, their good looks? Uh, is it their perceived wisdom or, or education or power? Uh, while we may not generally think that um, prosperity and, and godliness are synonymous. Do we do we practically look at others and that's how we value them based on their prosperity? Um, do we look at Christians and think, man, God must be blessing this person. Look at how look at how uh, uh, strong they are. Look at how prosperous they are. Uh, conversely, do we ever fall into the trap of thinking that that suffering or hardship uh, or even failure uh, is evidence of a lack of godliness? Uh, is this a principle we apply to our lives and, and apply it to the lives of others and therefore look down on them? Um, so today in this passage, the, these are some of the things the, the Corinthian church was struggling with. And so this is why Paul wrote the letter to them. They, they struggle with some of those same thoughts about how to value others. Um, so our, our text for today, I said, is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 to 18. Uh, let's read this text together. Uh, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For the slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are unseen, but to the things that are as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So in this passage uh, that we're going to go through today, Paul exhorts the Corinthians and really all Christians, including us who believe, to look to the surpassing power of God as it masterfully works in and through our weaknesses, uh, despite our weaknesses, so that we can persevere through suffering and put Jesus on display so that grace extends to more and more people and God is glorified. I know that's a mouthful, uh, but I didn't want to leave kind of the big picture of the text that we're going to go through. Uh, so this passage can be broken up into three main sections. Uh, if you picture a triangle, 
Uh, we could look at the apex or the top of the triangle as, as, as verse 16, uh, where it says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So that's the top of our triangle, right? Um, that would be technically the second section. Then the first section to the left of the triangle or to your right, however you want to look at it, uh, is verses 7 to 15. This is the reason we do not lose heart. Uh, and then the right of the triangle, uh, verses 17 to 18, where Paul expands upon the daily renewal of our inner self. Uh, so these sections are, are important to, to understand, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, use these sections to influence how I dissect the passage today. and We're, we're going to draw some points of application. Um, and I have four main points of application uh, formed as questions uh, that we'll discuss. And to, he to help you remember these points, there's two what's and there's two do's. Uh, if you like to take notes. Uh, Stu, you said you're going to be taking copious notes, so that's for you. Uh, so the first is, uh, what should our weakness lead us to conclude? The second is, what qualities do we value in others? The third, do we live for the benefit of others? And the fourth, do we live with the end in mind? So for point one, what should our weakness lead us to conclude? Uh, so before we dig deeper into this passage, gaining an understanding of the whole book context will enable us to figure out why Paul wrote what he wrote. We're all the way in chapter four. How did we get here and where is Paul likely to be going? Uh, why is he writing this letter? So in verse seven, uh, we see that it begins with a but. Um, and st this is stating a contrast uh, between uh, that the Paul has been building since the beginning of the book. He gets to 4-7 and he goes but. So what is, what is he contrasting and, and why is he doing it? So he's contrasting as we see in this verse the treasure or frail man or himself, Paul, or all Christians who believe. He's contrasting that, uh, the jars of clay, uh, with, with the treasure, right? Um, so this contrast is meant to show the surpassing power of God. And so since the gospel came to Corinth, uh, there grew an expectation among the Christians in Corinth and particularly their leaders that they should be impressive in word or deed. In fact, they grew ashamed of Paul because he, he suffered too much, right? How could someone who suffers so much be a spirit-filled apostle of God? They really struggled with this, especially with the leaders they had who were great orators. They were great speakers. Uh, they looked flashy. Um, so, yeah, how can Paul be considered uh, a spirit-filled servant of God? Uh, they probably likely wondered, should Paul be a spokesperson for Christianity? I mean, like, we want our movement to take off. Paul's one of our faces here. This doesn't look good. This, he suffers too much. We don't want other people to look at Christianity and think, man, look at what Paul's doing. I don't, I don't want to be like that. So they, they wondered, should Paul be one of our representatives? So this is similar when you think about commercials or, or billboards or any advertisements. Companies use beautiful people, likable characters, um, some, someone that's popular. Uh, they want to advertise their products. They want people to buy into it. Uh, so you'll likely not see someone weak or hated as a, as a spokesperson for anything. Um, so they wondered, is Paul the right spokesperson? Uh, is it his weakness contrary to a spirit-filled gospel? Um, so Paul wrote this letter to them because they needed a worldview shift, right? And this worldview shift is perfectly summarized in the paradoxical nature of the gospel. We have a treasure and a jar of clay. Th those just don't seem to fit. It's, it's just a paradox. And this paradox is what Paul is going to use to help the Corinthians understand the surpassing power that belongs to God alone and not to us. And so earlier on in the book, this treasure, uh, Paul describes it as the ministry of the spirit or the ministry of righteousness. 
and it's the the new and permanent covenant and it's different from the old covenant which paul describes the uh, as the ministry of death or the ministry of condemnation that was temporary and so while the old covenant was glorious if we remember back in exodus 34 they cannot look upon moses's face after receiving the covenant because it was so glorious um but this new covenant is even more glorious, right? So God, through Christ, removes our veil by the Spirit so we can gaze upon his glory. We frail jars of clay can gaze upon his glory. So up to verse 7, we're, we're meant to see in great clarity uh, that the work of salvation is from God through Christ by the Spirit. And so despite our undeserving state, when we get to 2 Corinthians 4, 6, right before we get into our passage, verse 6 says, God has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of who? in the face of Jesus, right? So this is a new and better face, not the face of Moses for the old covenant that was not as glorious, that was a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. Now God has shown into our hearts uh, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of his son Jesus that we can now gaze upon. So in verse 7, when Paul says, but we have this treasure, this isn't a common treasure, right? He's been building up the magnificence of this treasure. So by the time we get to verse 4, uh, seven, we should have this picture in our mind of, wow, this treasure is magnificent. And that helps us contrast to just kind of sit more deeply as we're reading through this text. And this treasure, what is it? It's the eternal covenant uh, that God enacted through Christ to bring about salvation to all who believe. But who are those that believe, right? Th those of us in here that, that have put our faith in Christ, who are we? We're, we're sinful, we're frail, we have veil hearts, uh, veil eyes and hard hearts, and we can't find salvation by ourselves, right? So we, pre-Christ, are like Lazarus, right? Lazarus, when he died, he couldn't breathe. He couldn't get up and walk. He couldn't move around. Uh, he couldn't do anything until Christ raised him. So similarly, we have hearts that are hard or dead to God. And in God's mercy, like we saw in verse 6, he is shown into our hard hearts so we can gaze upon the glory of the, in the face of Jesus' Son. Um, so we receive salvation because God through Jesus has, has made a way for us. So that's, that's when you think about those who believe, uh, we're just undeserving sinners. So for point one, uh, what should our weakness lead us to conclude? Well, our, our frailty and weakness should lead us to conclude that the surpassing power and therefore all the glory belongs to God alone. But let's not forget the top of our triangle, right? Like we're still in verse seven, which is the left of our triangle or my left that is pointing up to verse 16 that we're going to get to why we don't lose heart. So when we're suffering or struggling or feeling weak and frail, why don't we lose heart? All right. So verse seven helps us understand this six and seven, right? God has shown into our hearts. He's provided eternal hope through Christ and God is doing the work. So this should, this should humble us as Christians, but also produce confidence in God despite our weaknesses. So anytime we're, we're losing heart, who has the power? God alone. Uh, so when you're feeling weak or, or lost or without hope, uh, where do you run to? Like, what's your escape? Do you go to the, the computer or the TV or do you go to some other distraction to kind of quell your, your anxiety or emotions or your, yeah, just feelings of weakness? Um, I, I guess where would the world tell you to run? Uh, Lee was reading me this excerpt from this, I think it, it was like a, a New York Times bestseller book. And it was, it was just about uh, what the world would say about where to find your strength and your, your hope. Um, and it's, it's looking inward. It's like, you can do this is the, is the message of most of these self-help books. But Paul would tell us, and the rest of scripture, um, that the surpassing power belongs to God alone. So when you're in that moment of struggling and wondering where you should turn, 
scripture would tell us that the first place we should go is to God because he has the power alone to to save us and to sustain us, right? Uh, now, moving on to point two, uh, what do we value in others? So let's, let's look a bit at God's power as it works through Paul's frailty. So in verse 16, uh, Paul says, though our outer self is wasting away. So what does that mean, right, when he says our outer self is wasting away? Well, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4, it explains it pretty well. Uh, Paul says, we're afflicted in every way, we're not crushed, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Uh, persecuted, but not forsaken. Uh, struck down, but not destroyed. So Paul's outer nature is wasting away. That's what he means by his outer self is wasting away. This list is about him. Um, in fact, if we skip forward a bit to, to chapter 11, verse 24 to 27, we get a little bit more details into Paul's suffering, into what he talks about being crushed and perplexed. Um, so in verse 24, it says five times, or verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So Paul has been afflicted or being translated, uh, or can be translated to press like a grape. Uh, he's been perplexed or at loss of oneself, stranded and alone, persecuted uh, or pushed away, struck down. And then in verse 10 to 11 of chapter 4, Paul continues that this, this outer self wasting away, the suffering is him carrying in the body the death of Jesus, right? So that's that relation there. He says in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death in this context, context that Paul is talking about, that's just a summary of the suffering that he listed, being persecuted, struck down, uh, everything we just read in chapter 11. Death in this context is just a summary of everything he's been talking about. And then the life of Jesus being manifested in his body, that's him not being crushed. We look back at verse 8 where he says, I'm afflicted but not crushed. That life of Jesus being manifested. He's perplexed but not driven to despair. Life of Jesus being manifested. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. So the Corinthian Christians looked at Paul and they only focused on his caring in the body of the death of Jesus, right? Um, but... Or, or better yet, they only focused on his outer self wasting away. But they didn't perceive this suffering or his outer self wasting away as him carrying in the body of the death of Jesus. They didn't look at those and relate them together, right? They just looked at it as unnecessary suffering because they didn't perceive that suffering for Christ has a purpose. They just saw this dude is just, he's just suffering too much. He is, he's probably not doing the right things. They didn't make a relation between us and, carrying the body of the death of Jesus and Jesus's life being manifested in our flesh. Uh, so they can see that in Paul, the life of Jesus being manifested in their flesh. So the life of Jesus probably was also not being manifested in their own flesh. So I ask you, like, what do you value in others, right? Um, what, do you, what do you value in yourself? It's likely that what we value in ourselves, that's, that's likely what we're going to value in other people. Uh, if we, like the Corinthians, value wrong things, if we value impressive speakers, if we value wealth, if we value um, uh, comfort, 
we won't only pursue those things, but we're going to judge and value others as they pursue those things and how they achieve them. That's where we're going to value ourselves and others by. And this will not only create a culture of competition, but, but also a culture of, of divisiveness in our church. So we might ask who's the most impressive or who's the most uh, humorous or bold or who's a great leader or organizer, uh, who, who has the most friends in church. Like we may look at the wrong things to value others. Um, and this is probably what was happening in the Corinthian church, right? If they were looking at Paul saying he was suffering too much, how do you suspect they were looking at members in their church who were also suffering, right? They would probably look down on them and, uh, yeah, not welcoming him and, and help them to love Jesus more like uh, we should be doing. And, uh, yeah, so all that to say we should pray that this doesn't happen in our church. Um, and conversely, if, if by the grace of God uh, we value Jesus, then we're going to, we value Jesus in our lives and we're going to try to emulate others who are emulating Jesus. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So rather than run our criterion for value through the lens of someone's circumstances, uh, we should seek to value Christ-likeness in a person. Now, the benefit of this is, uh, unlike divisiveness or competition if we value jesus in our lives and his life being on full display as we live out our lives and we value that in others uh, the result will be a culture of encouragement and exhortation uh, iron sharpening iron of, of discipling and disciple making and so we should be praying for this for this in our church now when you look at the the list of things paul has gone through uh, you might be th thinking that your life is not that bad, right? Like, who was shipwrecked recently? Yeah. Or who had 39 lashes recently? Um, none of us have. Um, so I look at this list and I think, man, uh, I, don't, I don't think I could persevere like Paul did. Like, I wake up and uh, I'm irritable if my daughter gets up before me and she wakes me up, right? Like, that's, that's suffering in my book at times. Um, <laughs> And you're, you're absolutely correct if you think you can't suffer like Paul did. I mean, to be fair, though, Paul didn't even believe that he could suffer the way he did, right? So, and, and persevere through that suffering. So if we look at chapter 1, verses 8 to 9 in Second Corinthians, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened of our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but God who raises the dead. So Paul went through times where he was like, I think I'm going to die. Like this, I'm, this, this is too much for me. Um, but he says it was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God. So he was on the struggle bus on numerous occasions, right? Paul, uh, after conversion, uh, uh, suffered a, a lot. But where did this push him? His suffering pushed him to God, right? At the end of verse 9, like I said, uh, I read, he said, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So he wanted to see and wanted others to see God's power on full display in his life. That was his mission, right? God uh, is the Savior through Christ by the Spirit. I want, I want God to be on full display in my life. And so God's work of power in Paul's life, he didn't work through Paul by allowing Paul to avoid suffering. Uh, rather, it was uh, strengthening Paul so that he could persevere through suffering and not lose, lose heart and amid incredible suffering and sorrow. So uh, consider this, right? We're, we're always being watched. Uh, for example, Gloria, my, my daughter at times, she will play games where I'm a character in the game, playing mommy or daddy. Uh, there are times where she's playing and uh, 
a character like a doll is being disciplined. So I'm like, how is she going to, you know, my discipline's reflecting in how she disciplines. And so we're, we're always being watched, right? Um, so similarly, when we face hardships uh, or, or, uh, or any types of suffering, what do, what do others see when this happens? Uh, so for point two, who's, who's on display in our lives? Uh, we should want others to see the life of Jesus being manifested in our life, right? Uh, as, as the death of Jesus, uh, or as, yeah, we're, we're going through that, that death that Paul describes, the being perplexed or struck down uh, or feeling without hope. Uh, what should we want others to see? Uh, so we should help each other love Jesus more so we could ensure and encourage and exhort that the life of Jesus is not only being manifested in our lives, but, but in the lives of others. Um, and, and this provides a nice segue into our next point, point three, which is do we live for the benefit of others? So in verse 12, Paul says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. So this death here is, is we, as, uh, this death is what we spoke about uh, a few verses back, the summary of the list of Paul's sufferings. And Paul says that those things happen so that life may work in you, in the church of Corinth. So what does it mean when he says, so death is at work in us, but life in you? Um, just for a point of illustration, Lee and I have some friends uh, who, over the course of several months uh, from diagnosis, their, their two-year-old daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and over the course of several months, they, they watched her slowly die last year. And uh, during this process, they journaled. They journaled a lot. Uh, I think this app's called like Caring Bridge, and they just journaled. They put photos in there, and uh, they just journaled about her suffering, about their suffering, they asked for prayers. They shared this with everyone they knew. And uh, they, yeah, they pleaded for prayers. They pleaded that we would join them in prayer. They pleaded for any help. If anyone knew of any treatments, any trials that uh, they could pursue because they had, they had exhausted all options. Um, and they would find a doctor and the doctor would say, hey, this is, I'm sorry, uh, this is terminal. Then someone would, would give them a, hey, have you looked into this? And they would pursue a new treatment and they would make some progress, two steps forwards, but three steps back. Um, and they, they journaled all of this, and we got it in emails. And uh, in every one of their messages, there was, there was lots of sorrow and pain. Uh, at times, reading the message, we could, we could feel that they were despairing of life itself and that their daughter had received a death sentence. And it, it was hard to watch. I remember just reading it, and yeah, even now thinking about it, it's, it's hard to watch someone go through that. But then when you have daughters of your own and you're like, Lord, please don't take my kids, right? It's just hard to watch someone suffer. Um, and just reading these messages, it was just, yeah, it was difficult to watch them go through that. Uh, but, but in every message they wrote, you could see the surpassing power of God on full display. Um, there were times he even wrote about encounters he had in the hospital with other families whose children were dying or receiving cancer treatments. And he was, he was proclaiming the gospel. He was watching his daughter suffer, and when he found another unbeliever or an unbeliever, he would take a moment to just share the the good news of the gospel with them and the surpassing power of God. And uh, I just remember thinking, would I would I respond that way? Right? Would, would that be my first thought to make God's power known? Um, anyway, so uh, Jesus being manifested in their lives during an extremely difficult time, this this trial or or the death at work in them. Uh, it, it brought greater faith for me and Lee, or life in you. So this is what it means when Paul says, death is a work in us, but life in you. Uh, Paul was suffering for the sake of the Corinthian church and for all the other churches he wrote letters to. 
so through their suffering, our friends suffering, they relied on God and, and trusted in his sovereignty to bring all glory to him. And those of us who got a front row seat at their suffering, like this was every few days or every week, so we would just get a front row seat and read exactly what they were going through, all their hopes and fears and longings and prayers and, and feelings of anger and, and losing heart. We, we got to read everything. Um, they were super transparent about it. And those of us who got a front row seat to see their suffering and God's power work on full display, I can tell you, Lee and I's faith grew by watching them suffer. Uh, they suffered well for the glory of God. And I pray that one day, if I'm ever in any suffering situation, that I would model what they did, um, just like we should be modeling how, how other Christians are imitating Christ. So death working in us has the potential to bring life to, to our community, to our church, to our family, to our community at large. And it's easy to focus on ourselves when we suffer. I mean, why not, right? Suffering it's not pleasant, right? It's not easy. Even our best efforts, right? We, we want to circle the wagons. We want to, we want to kind of uh, regroup. We want to pray. We want to fast. We want to read scripture uh, when we're suffering uh, at times. And these are all spiritually healthy responses. Um, but are you suffering alone? Like, are you doing this alone? Uh, are, we, are we failing to include others because uh, we value the wrong things in ourselves, right? We value comfort and we value prosperity. So if we value that in ourselves, of course we're not going to want to share that with other people because we're going to worry that they judge us. Um, do we think we're too strong and not actually the jars of clay that Paul started this section by describing us as? Uh, or do we value the wrong things like, like comfort or strength or having our lives put together? Uh, do we care too much about what other people think about us? That's why we don't include them in our sufferings. Um, so we, we must not be afraid to let other people in our sufferings, just like my friends that I spoke about uh, who lost their daughter last year. Uh, so suffering well and humbly and joyfully uh, and submitting to God in our trials is a death really to ourselves that, that brings life to others. Uh, so this is a, a part of uh, do we live for the benefit of others, right? Are we suffering well so that God will be glorified and others will be benefited? Uh, now, similar to this, next in, in verse 13 to 15, uh, Paul, Paul equalizes us in the faith, right? So whether impressive by worldly standards or not, in, in verse 13 to 15, he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So this reality that we have the, the same spirit of faith, this, for one, upholds your unity in Christ, right? Instead of dividing us by our perceived bodily strengths, which, like we said, are just jars of clay, this same spirit of faith uh, unifies us in Christ and, and produces a, a brother-sister, help-me-love-Jesus-more type of attitude. And this one fact, right, this one sentence could pierce any issues the Corinthian church were having with Paul's suffering. I mean, they have the same spirit of faith that Paul had, right? So this should nullify any divisiveness or any competition or any shunning of Paul uh, there in Christ together. So moreover, we in this church have the same spirit of faith uh, that Paul, that the Corinthian church, and, and that the psalmist had that Paul quotes in here. So Paul says, just as he believed and spoke, uh, so we believe in speaking. He, he quotes Psalm 116, uh, which we open the service with. It's, it's a chapter about affliction 
and the psalmist's love and faith in the Lord because of his mercy. So Paul quotes, I believe and so I spoke. And I'll read a short excerpt uh, from Psalm 116, verses 1 to 10 again. Uh, the psalmist says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish when I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. So not only is Paul equalizing in us in the faith in this section where he says we have the same spirit of faith, but he's reminding the Corinthian church and he's reminding us about the theology of suffering, right? What Paul was doing, that's not new. He reached all the way back into the Psalms and he said, look, this theology of suffering, this isn't unique to me. I'm not making this up to try to engender favor in your eyes. Um, so even the psalmist suffered and believed uh, despite his sufferings, and, and he believed in God because he trusted in, in God's mercy and grace in his life. And so in verse 14, where it says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring you into his presence. Paul knows, and he wants the Corinthian church to know, and he wants us to know that uh, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who would ultimately raise Paul and raise us and bring us into God's presence. So if this isn't a true treasure that Paul's talking about, this treasure in jar of clay, if this isn't a true treasure, then I really don't know what it is, right? It's, it's incomparable. So Paul spoke uh, of his belief despite his sufferings. He spoke about the treasure so that others too would believe. Uh, and he worked for the sake of others. So when we get to verse 15, Paul says, uh, for it is all for your sake. So that, so that what, right? Why, why is it for their sake? If you have a KJV translation, a King James Version, uh, I really appreciate the translation of verse 15. I'm going to read the, the KJV translation of verse 15. It says, for all things are for your sakes, so that the, for all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many rebound to the glory of God. I think that word rebound is, is very helpful in understanding how our efforts to follow God in obedience, what, what the impact of it is. So uh, it, it makes it clear that the for the sake of others isn't the end, right? We're not working just for the sake of others, uh, and, and that's the end of it. Uh, the end is the glory of God, so that as grace extends to more and more people, God receives more glory. So I, I picture this like I'm, I'm throwing a ball, and that's like the the believing and speaking of God's treasure, uh, even amid suffering, right? It's like throwing a ball, and then the ball hits the wall where it makes impact. And that impact is grace extending to more and more people, and as a result, they give more and more thanks to God. And when the ball bounces back or rebound, God get, gets all the glory. So any, any throwing, any obedience, any speaking when we're believing despite our suffering and like proclaiming that treasure uh, despite our weakness uh, as jars of clay, any throwing of that, that truth, that faith out to the world only rebounds to the glory of God as grace is extended to more and more people. And as they receive God's grace, that results in thanksgiving to God and, and God gets more glory. So if we start back at the beginning, right, where God, God unveiled our eyes and softened our hearts to receive faith, and believe in Jesus for salvation. And then he allows us to participate in his good work that he prepares for us. 
So when, when we exercise obedience and do God's work, he gets more glory. Uh, so our efforts and obedience always, always results in more glory to God. So for point three, right, who do we live for or do we live for the benefit of others? Can you think of any anything greater in this life than living for the benefit of others in the glory of God? Uh, the, the commandments were summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so we get to we get to participate in God's work. He doesn't need us, but he includes us. Uh, Lee was making pizza dough once, and Gloria wanted to help her. We're, we're joking about she's really not helping, right? Like, it's slowing down the process, and, I, you know, I'm suffering, I'm hungry. Um, and But we, we talked about how that's such a picture of us with God. Like, God doesn't need us to help with anything, but he includes us in his work uh, for his glory. It benefits us. We get to love and serve others, but ultimately God's receiving the glory. So how amazing is our God to use us despite our weaknesses, right, uh, for his glory? He's just, yeah, working in and through us um, for, the, for the good of others, and, and praise God for that. So this is, a, this is a good reason not to be discouraged or lose heart. Just remember, this is all pointing to that, that top of the apex of our triangle, verse 16. Why do we not lose heart? Because God's merciful. God includes us in his plan of salvation, um, and we should be super thankful and not discourage or lose heart when we reflect on those truths from scripture. Now, while the Corinthian church despised Paul about his, you know, for his sufferings, he tells them why he doesn't suffering suffer, why he suffers and does not lose heart. So in verse 16, so we do not lose heart though. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. So in verses seven to 15, we covered our outer self that's wasting away, right? The being crushed, uh, but not driven to despair. Um, so even though uh, our outer self is wasting away, we saw that Jesus' life is being manifested through Paul's suffering, which puts God on full display. And that the best way to live our lives is for the glory of God and the good of others. Um, but now to conclude versus, you know, the, the right of the triangle, to conclude, Paul caps off this section by expanding upon this, this daily renewal of our inner self. And so this is another paradoxical comparison, right? The first one we saw was the treasure with the jars of clay, uh, now this comparison is of the light and momentary affliction with, with an eternal weight of glory, right? We have two things that Paul is going to kind of compare. And in verse 17, he says, uh, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul calls his afflictions light, right? So if we remember that list from chapter 11, did any of those things seem light to you, right? Like the shipwrecks, the, the I mean, that just did seem like a list of light things that Paul was enduring. The beatings, the shipwrecks, none of that. So, But he calls those light. And he doesn't call them light because they're easy. He calls them light because of what he's going to compare them to. Or I guess better yet, what he doesn't compare them to. Because he calls it an incomparable uh, weight of glory that's to be revealed. Uh, so this is likewise echoed in, in Romans 8, 18, where Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. So his sufferings, Paul's sufferings, the Corinthian sufferings, and our sufferings, they're momentary. And momentary in this context, it obviously doesn't mean short, right? Like two weeks ago, we went through uh, Genesis 40, where Joseph was eventually elevated to the second of command and, and pastor Eric made the comment. He said, Joseph was a slave or a prisoner for about 13 years before this happened. Similarly in Hebrews 11, uh, it's 
call the Hall of Faith, I guess. It's others suffered mocking and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided them something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So, as we can see in Paul's life, as we can see in, in the, the list of those in Hebrews 11, momentary means at least as long as our lifetime, right? It doesn't mean 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. It's between now and when we die. That's what momentary means. But although our sufferings seem long, it's, it's a tiny part of eternity, right? When you compare it to what is to come, it's not only light, it's minuscule in time. So for those of us in here who look to Christ for salvation, praise God. Your suffering, your lifetime, how does that compare with millions and billions of years to come in eternity with Christ? Like, it just it just doesn't. It's minuscule in time. Now, remind me of that when I'm suffering, right? Because I'll easily forget this. Um, but more importantly, right, the suffering Paul talks about, it's not, it's not disconnected from the glory to come. So Paul doesn't say our suffering is light and momentary, but don't worry about it. Eternal glory awaits. I mean, if Paul said that, I would be fine with that. That, I mean, you're suffering now, but don't worry, eternity awaits. But that's not what he said. He goes a step further, right? He says it's more than that. Uh, Paul says our affliction prepares an eternal weight of glory, right? They are connected. So how does our suffering really prepare anything, right? Uh, Paul, in effect, he's saying that our affliction works glory, produces the eternal weight of glory. Uh, This means that not one ounce of my suffering or your suffering is meaningless. That's what Paul is saying. Nothing you suffer you know, uh, for the sake of Christ, it's meaningless. Uh, Each moment we patiently endure pain works and produces something in the age to come. So every single moment of our suffering is significant and not negatively significant, right? You could have significant things that are negatively significant, but this is a positively significant thing, even though in the moment it it feels completely the opposite of that. Um, So I I have to admit that I, I... don't value my suffering. I the first thing I do when I suffer is I want out of my suffering, right? I don't I don't look at it and go, man, I hope this lasts longer because it's preparing more glory to come. That's not my first inclination or my second or third really. Um, so do you value your suffering? I mean does anyone does anyone value their suffering? Um, and I'm not asking you if you enjoy your suffering, right? I'm not asking if you think your suffering's fun and it makes you happy. I'm asking if you if you value it. Uh, so if we skip a little bit further in the second Corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 to 10 Paul says this he says so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being conceited these times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me but he said to me my grace is sufficient for you my power for my power is made perfect in your weakness Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So it's encouraging, right, that Paul wanted out of his suffering, too. I mean, he didn't like it. He asked for God. He asked God for his suffering to leave him. Uh, But more than that, Paul wants Christ to be glorified in his weakness. So as we've already seen and we continue to see in this text, Paul wants glory to to go only to God, uh, working in his life and sustaining him, especially through suffering. And I know someone else in the Bible who did something similar, right? Who modeled this perfectly. 
Uh, so Luke quotes Jesus as he prayed to God about his upcoming death. In Luke twenty-two forty-one to 42, it says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is an example for Paul and for us. Uh, he suffered for the benefit of mankind and the glory of God. Albeit Jesus' suffering is completely different because he was an unjust sinner that suffered for our sake, but he still did so for the glory of God. So Paul doesn't lose heart because he sets his mind on this glory to come, right? That Christ has paved the way for. And in verse 18, Paul says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So God offered Paul and the Corinthians and, and everyone who believes in Jesus for salvation an incomparable glorious eternity. So what if Paul didn't look at uh, the things that are unseen, right? What if he didn't look at the eternal things? Uh, what if he just looked at his suffering, things which are seen visibly and, and tangibly and the things that are temporary? I mean, he would have lost heart and failed to persevere for sure. Uh, do we just look at our pain and suffering? Even in our prayers to God. Like when we pray to God, are we whining to God about our suffering? Are we complaining to God about our suffering? Or are we calling upon his promises about this eternal weight of glory that is to come? So Paul is writing to the Corinthians to combat some problems they were having in the church. They can look at Paul as a, a spirit-filled servant of God. He suffered too much. They focused too much on his outer self. They focused on what the world valued and not what God valued. They put glory in men and not in God. This just created a whole mess in how they related to the, the apostle that brought the, the gospel, the good news to them. So they believe, they, they forgot about all of that. So in, instead of valuing Paul speaking the truth of the gospel and, and suffering for it to put Jesus on display, they just wanted to be on display. Instead of suffering with Paul and for Christ, they live for their own benefit. So they're self-involved versus living for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Um, they avoided all types of suffering. They probably looked down on those in their in their church and their congregation who suffered. And more importantly, they forgot Jesus' suffering. I mean, isn't he the perfect archetype of, of a suffering servant? And they forgot about him. He came to suffer for our sake. Like I said, he unjustly suffered for our sake. And he did this because we were weak jars of clay, unable to save ourselves. So even though we are undeserving, he suffered for us. And, and they, they seem to have forgotten about that. Are, I mean, are we guilty of this? I know we might not uh, say it, but do we practically live our lives uh, like we have forgotten about the suffering servant, that we have forgotten about putting God on full display in our lives? Do we live for the benefit of others? Uh, do you ever get a text or a phone call like, can you help me with this? And your first inclination is to make up an excuse. Uh, or do you fail to let others into your, your suffering or sorrow because you're too embarrassed when you know you need others to pray with you? You know you need help to make it through some trial you're going through. Do we live so that all we do results in the glory of God? I have to admit, I mean, preparing this sermon and digging into this text, I was, yeah, I was really convicted about how uh, I view suffering and how I live for the benefit of others or, or lack thereof. Um, so that, yeah, this was really convicting for me. Uh, but let's assume that that not everyone in here believes the gospel of Jesus. I know we're a small church and we've talked to to others frequently, but just let's assume that not everyone in here believes the gospel, or, or let's just assume that some of us struggle with continuing to trust Jesus for salvation, right? We've, we've previously believed, but 
assurance, we're struggling with that, we're, we're walking and life is difficult and we're just struggling to continue to believe and trust in Jesus for salvation. Well, Paul, inspired by God, he said that we're weak and frail jars of clay. Right? We're, we're weak. Uh, he also said that God's spirit will remove the veil from our eyes so that we can look upon Jesus in faith. Not because anything we have done, but but because of what God did and for his glory. So he wants he wants his grace to extend to more and more people, including you and me. So if you are struggling to believe or you don't believe, today God's grace is extended to you. So today is the day of salvation. So believe it and walk in it. And if you believe, remember that God unveiled your eyes. You didn't do anything. God unveiled your eyes. So walk humbly and praise him for it. And the last thing I want to leave you with is, if there is something for you to do, uh, then do it, right? Don't look to the potential suffering that could come from it, um, but live for God's glory. So God's opinion is the only one that matters, and we should live for, for well done, good and faithful servant. So I encourage you to suffer well and, and may it rebound for God's glory uh, as it prepares an eternal way to glory. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for uh, the surpassing power that belongs to you alone. We thank you that even though we are weak and undeserving sinners, you have uh, removed the veil from our eyes and softened our hearts so we can believe the gospel and be saved. I pray, Lord, that in our suffering and in our sorrow, that we will remember that you are sovereign and you are good and you're in control. Lord, that we would uh, encourage and exhort each other well and help one another to love Jesus more uh, and that grace would extend to more and more people through that and that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.